0: Welcome to another episode of Thriving Through Menopause. I'm Clarissa Christensen, and today I am joined by somebody very special. She's Anne-Marie McQueen. She's a journalist, and we're going to be talking about a complete overview of menopause because we spend way too much time in the nitty gritty, and it's good to step back. So welcome, Anne-Marie, to Thriving Through Menopause. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have you. And to really open up the conversation about what is happening in the world of menopause and what can we learn and what should we be looking out for and asking questions about, because I think that's a very important part of this journey.
1: Okay. So I think like this entire transition, it's different for everyone. It's different in different countries. It's different for people with different backgrounds. Um. The UK has dominated the conversation for the last couple of years. And it it's really exciting in terms of awareness, what's going on there. It's very trendy for celebrities to speak out about it. But the conversation has taken a turn and it's very heavily weighted to the deficiency narrative, the possibility that this is a disease and hormone therapy is the answer. And you can see that in other parts of the world. I can see that emerging in the US. And it's always been here since hormone therapy was invented or produced for the first time. But you have um, lots throughout Europe, uh, you have a a much more measured approach, I think, to guidance from um, doctors. You have North America, really interesting things happening where uh, there, uh, in Canada, I'm seeing the beginnings of the private menopause clinics, Canada and the US, I'm seeing the first beginnings of doctors um, opening that model, which is what the UK has sort of been based on all different medical systems in the US. I'm seeing celebrities investing in menopause companies, uh, which is a big difference from celebrities just getting covers talking about it. And that I think that's a really interesting difference to note. And all over the world, people going through menopause differently, really interesting research coming out of countries like um, Iran on like saffron and Japan on like parabiotics, which are sort of the dead bugs that you can take. All just the coolest things happening in all sorts, sorts of parts of the world. But of course, everyone where they live, they think that that is the way it is. So and <laughs> <It, laughs> Australia has an interesting conversation too going on. And um, it's pretty, they're all sort of dominated by hormone therapy. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with talking about hormone therapy. And I'm excited to learn more about it. Uh, I'm excited to look into all the new research. Uh, I, I am troubled when it's dominated as like the answer, the thing you have to do, uh, the thing that every one size fits all. And that still sort of permeates that permeates around the world. And I just want to talk about the Middle East for one second, because that's the real surprise to me. It, I, I thought, you know, I'll be living in the Middle East where I love living, but it's not going to be really, really very relevant here because it's sort of, you know, it's going to have way more shame stigma and that's not the case at all like uh, uh, a the middle east uh, created this amazing ad campaign about changing the name of menopause in arabic um, they said it was named age of despair well that was one of like 12 definitions but that raised a lot of awareness abu dhabi government opened a private uh, opened a public menopause clinic i just spoke to the doctors from there uh, there's a bunch of other, you know, there's a bunch of other indications. I've been out, gone on the radio in Dubai, and like tons of people called in. So that's just a little smattering. But India, also, there was a show on Netflix, Bombay Begums. Like, there's just so much happening. Uh, it's not just the UK. It's not just you know where you are.
0: No, no. And I think that's that's the really interesting thing. It's like somehow this unlocked a global conversation. But maybe what you've said also reflects a little bit about culture how medical systems function in different countries and and how actually, you know, clinicians are in some way guided and, and made to follow rules or not because it feels a bit wild west in the UK now and I couldn't imagine that a, a Swedish or a German doctor would break ranks and speak out like that. It would be, in fact, the, the exact opposite has happened here in Sweden, the exact opposite. What's that? What has happened? Well, very much, they, they came together. Very Swedish, you know, very consensus. Yeah, <laughs> A consensus country where every decision takes a million years. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but there, you know, there was a coming together. There were surveys. There was a sense that they needed to do something. Then it was a very collective, united front from the whole medical community that we need to move forward, that training of doctors was primary. And a revision of the guidelines, which now look more like the British menopause and the North American guidelines, but very cautious steps, even if there were a couple of influencers shouting to the opposite, um, that was the the thing and a very, you know, no, not lots of talks. Well, there are virtually no private clinics here. And if they're private, they're still adhering to the national guidelines. Yeah, mm. so so it, it's not like they have a different view. And I think I've seen that working in Germany now and, and in main, mainland Europe, where I've been involved in a project as a patient advocate. The clinicians very united in their view and quite conservative still because they're saying we want it to be evidence based. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is a
1: difficult thing because, you know, with the North American Menopause Society just came out with guidelines this year too for hormone therapy, and they're very conservative as well. And if you talk to Anyone on the integrative sort of functional side, they'll be further ahead. They're talking about hormone therapy for longevity and anti-aging. Well, you're not going to get that from the official bodies, right? You're not going to get. We know that the uh, you know we know the advice in the medical doctor's office is at least ten years, if not more, behind on average than the the evidence. So that you know when the when the medical bodies aren't going to be advising, you know, it's all this it just takes a lot of time. So that's where it leaves us kind of like. Ooh, But the UK situation, you know, they really sort of started tearing themselves apart over this. And, you know, you had a situation, I think, where you had doctors who were afraid to speak out against the prevailing narrative, this disease narrative, and that is never good. And experts never agree across the board. I'm sure, you know, from interviewing them, you'll talk to someone one week that says one thing. And so there was that whole brouhaha over the summer over the (coughs) article, excuse me, the article in the British Medical Journal. (coughs) Sorry. Um, lead author, Dr. Martha or uh, Professor Martha Hickey from Australia. It was normalizing menopause. There was a swift reaction to that with a dozen doctors saying, you know. All she, all they were saying was menopause is normal. It happens to women in different ways. And then the reaction from a dozen doctors saying you're gaslighting women. It, I mean, but I feel like that over the summer and doctors and doctors start speaking out and you saw the Daily Mail, which I wouldn't normally praise, really taking hold of this because they love a controversial story and and speaking out and saying, are we pushing hormone therapy too hard? Are we, you know, asking really important questions? Yeah. And I think there's nothing more disheartening for women to go to the doctor and be given um, a prescription and told that this will work for you. and.
0: And we kind of know from Facebook groups, if we follow consumer conversation, which <laughs> 35 years of doing only that as a living, <laughs> I follow what they're saying, you know, and then you'll see more and more women stepping up and saying, well, it kind of worked, but it kind of didn't. And, and and it's not like it's a deceptive. For some women, it's not working at all. But a lot of people saying, look, it, it helped me. I, I am sleeping. My hot flashes are going, but God, I've put on weight or mm-hmm. actually... Um, I feel jittery in some way you mm. know so there were all these different conflicting stories and some people saying oh the sooner I can be off this the better others yeah. them furious because they're not getting it or they're only getting a partial so I think it it shows that there isn't a one size fits all as is Anne-Marie it's a it's a very complex individual situation and we have a million interrelated factors that make us who hmm. we are and I think that is I know your opinion, but I think that's sadly lacking from the conversation. The conversation gets very locked into hormones um, and not the fact that you may have a relationship that's going down the pan or you are, you've been shit at your job for years and this just made it worse. Or you hate your job or you've been living a lie or you haven't dealt
1: with your childhood trauma or you haven't, um. I mean it's you know your lifestyle is terrible you've used alcohol for years to relax and you drink too much you did you're not active you (laughs) I mean where do you where does it begin and end this is a time of life where you have to re-examine almost everything I understand why people want to focus on that one thing and there's always that story I took hormone therapy in two days I was better okay fine like that is that that does happen to some lucky people but I you know you. You have been in those Facebook groups. I I joined like 14 of those Facebook groups when I was researching this and it was a litany of despair in a lot of those. I mean, just like, I don't know what's going on, but we have to have the courage to take radical responsibility for every single part of our lives. And that is what, that's what no one wants to do. Who wants to do that? That's a huge job. We're already smashed with aging parents and kids and teenagers and we-
0: you know, so I get it. I get yeah. my earth. It, it. It's hard, and I can see that if someone's offering you a solution, and they're going, "Here's the solution; it'll fix you," and and I saw one come on Instagram from from a doctor who I followed quite a lot, and then she said people couldn't sleep. She said, "Just take HRT," and I'm thinking. Well, if you've got very bad night sweats, that might help you. But what if you can't switch your mind off? What if your mind is like, yeah, you know, the whole time, because yeah. you actually don't ever relax and you drunk three glasses of wine before you went to bed to knock yourself out. Well, that's the reason your poor system is going, hello, what's going on? It's waking up. And because to practice some of the practices that make you go to sleep, for example, requires you It's called to practice.
1: <laughs> you have to practice. I mean, it's a toll in the morning. It starts in the morning. This is the thing, like sleep is the number one thing. And I had some really big problems with sleep over the summer, Clarissa. Like I, my sleep had been very good and I was like, oh, is this it? And I can sort of feel the shifts in my hormones. Like I, I haven't taken hormone therapy yet. And the reason, one of the reasons I don't want to is I don't feel like I need it right now, but I also like, even though it's difficult, I kind of like feeling these shifts, uh, knowing what they're like. Naturally, and I know that word is radioactive. Naturally, yeah. but without normal therapy. But this summer I had trouble, and what did I let go? I ran into a period of terribly busy work, and I let it all go. I was working up until ten o'clock, staring at the phone. I wasn't getting out and having morning light and walks. I was working way too much. I wasn't. Um, I wasn't exercising. Uh, I was. I wasn't socializing and connection. I mean, all the things. I, there, there are a bunch of things I do at night, but I wasn't doing a lot of them, and you know, it just went all sideways.
0: Yeah, because, because the body likes a certain routine, you switch that routine and he suddenly goes, hello, what are you doing? You know, and it's after this warning signal, you know, it, that's what it does. And you're right, this is the hard thing. And so we buy into a panacea, which is quite dangerous. But I think what's interesting is the sort of Asian Middle Eastern perspective as well that's starting to emerge. This. Maybe more integrative at time. And though we're seeing the rise, I think, in America, as you said, of functional medicine and that that can also be the Wild West.
1: It certainly can. And you can get into this supplement world where you're just taking a ton of supplements. And I don't think that's good for you. I don't think I believe me, I've had this kind of high supplement load in my life and I've gone home to Canada to visit. My dad's been like, I don't even know how you process all that. You know, that stuff's all going through your liver. Our livers are very overburdened at this time. That's something to consider. I don't think, you know, I think you should be getting most of your stuff from food. And and the perception, someone wrote this on Instagram once when I talked about integrative medicine and it was like, they just want to put you on a bunch of expensive supplements. And it's like, okay, well, that's the far end criticism. And anyone responsible doesn't, doesn't want to do that. You know, the functional people yeah. I've seen, I, I had a gut problem that was healed this year at, at the most minimal cost that the doctor could have could have put me through, you know, like it was my, this was not my experience. And I think if you if you see an integrated person and it feels wacky, it probably is wacky.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think that's probably, and I think we have to use common sense and radical responsibility and, and judgment and say, if they're asking me to do something that feels very out of normal. And I think most of us know that if we had a healthy diet, moved, rested, had connection. We, we would all be more grounded and rest. We would yes. just feel a million times better. But I want to come back to this deficiency narrative because that is one that is a hot topic in the UK and I'm also seeing it migrating mm. as a journalist who talks to a lot of people on your podcast and, and in the newsletter and on social, I mean, what is your perspective on this? Where does it come from? And, and. Is it really the right thing for them to hear? Well, you have to
1: ask yourself, does it, does it, I like to say I'm on T reality here. Does it, does it make any sense that we were born half of us to develop a deficiency? Does it make any actual common sense? This is just the other end of puberty. It is an, it is a transition we were meant to go through. Our bodies are beautifully designed I'm a person who believes very much in the intelligence of my body and of the earth and of my connection to it. And I've come to that more and more as I've gotten older. I also believe in medicine. I also believe we need antibiotics. I also believe in the emergency room and surgery, all that. But my body is a beautiful thing. And so I don't mean my body is, you know what I mean? Um, it doesn't make any sense to me. And for me, I'm going to tell my niece who's 12. You know, when you get your period, like you're going to be fine, but in 40 years, you're going to develop a disease, you're going to develop a deficiency and, um, and you're going to have to take a therapy. And that is the only way that you're going to make that through that. Or, you know, your brain's going to fall apart. Your bones are going to fall apart. Your heart's going to stop. This doesn't make any sense, but it does make sense when you look at it from a medical perspective, because, you know, you have mainstream medicine. This is the mainstream and functional world and where we need to be in the middle because the mainstream world is only looking at symptoms and fixing symptoms and how to fix them. And that's just hand in hand with pharmaceuticals and interventions and therapeutics. And the integrative and functional world wants to know why things are happening and wants to look at the whole you, and wants to take into account all those other things. I mean, the amount of times I've been in the hospital, I go to a hospital now for checkups I'm in between floors, a 52-year-old woman. No one says perimenopause to me. No one says menopause. No one's putting it all together. Um, But I think really, it doesn't work as a disease, but it works very well as a marketing term. It doesn't work as a deficiency, but it works very well as a marketing term. And I ask people this all the time and I'm open to discussing it, but I do declare my sort of, (laughs) I'm, I'm open. Like I can't accept this as a disease, but I like to talk about it. So there was a doctor here, I asked her. She said, Anne-Marie, this is ovarian failure. But that's how she sees it. Yes. But when you go to a doctor that sort of looks at it that way, is that how you want to see it? Is that, you know, what feels right for you? And um, the, the most reasonable explanation I've been given is that this is, it may be worse for us. Not because, and I know you know this, not because we just started living past 50, because that's not true. We've always lived to an old age if we didn't die early, right? Um, and more of an maybe some sort of evolutionary mismatch where there's so much coming at us today that we're we enter this phase weakened, overburdened, that it's an onslaught that we we sort of crumple under. That makes a lot more sense to me, but that's not a disease and that's not a deficiency. It's not a deficiency because it was intended to be that way. That's just to me the truth. And to me, anyone else who describes it. I approach with the skepticism, I approach with everything, but maybe like this much more. <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe
0: I, you know, you know that I agree with you on that because and a lot of eminent people do too, who work in the field of reproductive health would agree that we're meant to end our ovulatory life. I mean, it's meant to end, quite frankly, because, you know, evolutionary, yes. We we weren't supposed to be producing young. Um that maybe couldn't be cared for when we were 50 and 60. You know, I once went to a lecture by Dr. Dennis Church, who's a wonderful psychotherapist. He's the most amazing man in the field of anxiety and compassion. And he put up a a clock and it showed the length of time that we've been on the planet as a hunter-gatherer and the length of time that we had been on the planet as a modern digital person who sits still and is fed. You know, a sugary diet and a constant light and noise. And we've spent 23 hours, 59 minutes and a number of seconds as a hunter-gatherer. Our body is still in many ways, not that I'm, you know, we should be picking barriers, but a lot of our body functions are still there. And we spent yeah. such a short time in this modern, over-stimulated world. A lot of what goes on for us is still what's there. Oh, so we weren't supposed to be producing a baby at 60, and so I would think that would be the worst thing that could happen being 62. So I'm very happy to be out of yeah. that and having no more menstruation and having mm. a different life. You know that that's that's the right thing. That's the natural transition. And if I was ever to be a grandmother, which I won't be, I doubt unless my son and his partner did what. You yeah, adopt a child or have a surrogate mother. I'm not going to be yeah. a grandmother yeah. in there. And if Remember. I was, well, I never know, but I don't think so, you know, mm. so I think it's highly likely. But in many other cases, I see the women around me who are 65, 70, they're now embracing being grandparents and having a different, a different mm. role in the community. Which is, mm-hmm. which is beautiful if, if that's the trajectory of right? your, you're not a mother, then you maybe do other things in your community too. But I think that when we look at it like that, we suddenly sort of stop that deficiency narrative and say, well, what's my new role? What am I here to give in my life? Yeah,
1: well, that's a very, you know, sort of healthy evolution of the mind and the person getting to that point. I haven't had children. So if I was going to feel good about myself, that's a much better way to feel good about myself is that I don't need to have, you know i i can the grandmother hypothesis is that we're sort of this happens so we can help the other um members of the tribe uh without the burden of having children ourselves but that carries out you know we've adapted that 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 can I, that happens for my niece and nephew that happens for my friends kids that happens for my friends who are going through experiences now um where they need help and support that that in the work that we're doing like there's so many different ways that that plays out. And I think that's a really important thing. And the other thing is they always said animals don't go through this. And now we're finding out, of course they do. First it was whales and then it was giraffes. And, um, I heard a vet in the UK say dogs go through it. Like we're going to find out. I think that many, many animals go through. People are very fond of saying something doesn't happen just because we don't know about it.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well then it doesn't happen. you know, be, that that's kind of the overs as a scientist I kinda of go, well that's science taken too far because mm-hmm. sometimes the other side of me, which is working in e- sort of more Eastern medicine, go, Oh, yes, but I have belief and I have historical views for thousands of years that maybe it does happen. And empirical views are equally valid to evidence views if they've gone on for a long time and they're not a whim. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, otherwise we wouldn't, we wouldn't bother <laughs> with looking at both sides. And I think when we can, we can embrace a calmer, different perspective, but yeah. we touched a bit on HRT, but one of the things I know is that HRT gets talked about as if it was estrogen. We get estrogen is mm-hmm. the only hormone. I mean, and I know you are a strong advocate against that and you've had on your show people like Lara Bryden and Geraldine Pryor and many others. And I've been in a meeting with them where they banged on progesterone, progesterone. But, you know, why the fixation of these genes and where does that break down?
1: Well, Dr. Pryor, I think, says because it was the first one that was discovered. Like, it's the first one. So it's just, why do people fixate on certain things and on others? I don't know. I just learned, which is shocking. I learned it from Peter Atia who has a great podcast, <coughs> that we make more testosterone and estrogen, women. And I did not know that because when we get our bloods or whatever, um, the, it's not standardized. So when you put it into picograms, we make more testosterone. So right there, why, why is a testosterone not paid attention to? And why did most doctors treat progesterone like it's, you know, something you have to do? And why do so many people in this field not make any distinction between synthetic and bioidentical and um, same with estrogen? I don't know, but the focus on estrogen solely troubles me because I think um, really forward thinking people are looking at things like DHEA, which is a precursor for all of it and is approved in the US and you're missing, you know, when you just go down one road and it's what you know, we all do this in all areas of our life and doctors do it too. But when you push that, it's just not going to work for everyone. And it's going to exclude all the other uh, avenues that could be explored. So research is just not being done. Like, you know, just not enough research is being done on progesterone. Um, We're finding out a little bit that maybe the synthetic progesterone paired with estrogen maybe have been responsible for some of the breast cancer risk we've heard about. Maybe it's not estrogen so much. But ask a doctor about that. And if they haven't kept up, kept up with the literature, they're not going to be able to explain it to you. So, you know what I mean? Like, I just think, I think testosterone, I, we need so much more research. We need so much more research.
0: Yes. And I, and I think that's, that's, the, that's the issue all around, really, is, is you touched on that, is research data. I read over the summer Caroline Paris's Invisible Women in the medical section. Boy, that was hard. That was just, I had to read that in small pages in a time. Uh, because she talked about the gap, the gender gap in research on every piece of a disease on the whole understanding of body systems on the extrapolation to women. And I had somebody else come on the show here um, and she talked about, um, setting up menopause research and and her doctors that she works with in her company, you know, submitting the research in the States. And somebody's saying, well, why are there more men in the trial? And they're going, because it's about menopause. So we have huge blind spots, you know, even to get the research off the ground, sufficiently funded, um, and to move it forward. So I'm not surprised that we've come here. We've grasped on one side. But Mm. you're right. I mean, the body makes more testosterone. Testosterone is very important, not just for muscle, but it's very important in our brains. It plays a Mm. massive role energy and also anxiety it's one of the contributing factors to why we can become anxious but we don't talk about it and in the same progesterone I mean you know you want hippocampus to work properly as neuroscientists and it's that as you know Laura Brunson it's this that's going up and down in the early parts of perimenopause. it is these students that's doing sort of a slow down 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 but it's this progesterone swings that are really creating us to feel I'm overstressed whatever it is I mean and it's that because of issues with PMS too of yeah them.
1: and sleep yeah it's very very interesting and it just it just makes me sort of wonder and also look we have to talk about the problems within clinical trials and what trials are funded and how they're conducted these days and how if a lot of money is spent, how the findings can be manipulated and hidden, and you know, you can't do an expensive clinical trial these days very,
0: very well with,
1: without finding something, right? Like,
0: <laughs> no, no, they have to ask where the funding comes from. Sometimes, unfortunately, we're in we're in a world of manipulated data everywhere, you know. So yeah. we have to always take the findings and go, that sounds good. Okay, let's let's dig a bit deeper.
1: One good example is the comp- the new non-hormonal uh treatments they're working on for and I'm not going to remember the the name but it's uh for hot flashes. There's a new non-hormonal treatment for hot flashes coming down the pipe. Estella's Pharma is the leader in this and I saw that oh I mean we're going to have a decision in February on this. Why? Because Estella's Pharma is giving the FDA in the US millions of dollars to fast track it. Well, I'm sorry. What what are the chances that the FDA or one little person in the FDA? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this. It's gone through some clinical trials already. But really, what are, what is the scrutiny level going to be when a whole bunch of funding comes in to make this go faster? You have to say that has to impact it. That that's the kind of thing I want to know if I'm going to take a therapy.
0: Yeah, I I agree, and I'm actually on a similar European project and I can say that I have raised extreme concern about the way the research is being conducted because obviously that was my background and I'm saying okay this is difficult for for a the questionnaire is bloody difficult okay (laughs) and secondly I'm really concerned about what your comparative inputs are here because you know with your they feel uncomfortable to me. So what are the results going to be I'm not very popular obviously there because I'm picking what- up and I'm saying, come on, you know, if I'm a lay person who has no knowledge and you present me with complicated and frightening opportunities, um, then, uh, you know, that's going to give me issues. Yeah. But I, but I wanted, you know, in our final sort of bit, when we wrap up, to ask some things about what are the most helpful things that you have uncovered in perimetaphors that might support you or support someone else? What, what are you excited about?
1: There's so many. My brother said this summer you have a lot of gizmos and potions. That's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have to take magnesium and I've recently switched to magnesium powder. Which I like to drink as a drink sitting down because one of the things I've realized lately is that you shouldn't drink standing up. You absorb liquids much better sitting down. I didn't know this. This is in the Quran. This is like, it's well known. Um, so I do Laura, Lara Bryden's nightly taurine magnesium powder. And um, I also take zinc. A morning light, I try to get outside and have morning light. I very, I feel that we not enough attention is paid to Wi Fi to uh, light from our phones, to the constant vibration that are going on around us. And if I don't get outside and get on the ground, I will start to feel very, very weird. And so I try to every day, like there's a park near my house, I walk around in my bare feet like a weirdo. I do these little work exercises and I do my Wim Hof breathing there. Um, Wim Hof breathing is a very big thing that's helped me. in the morning and i started sticking my face in ice water that changes my mood that wakes me up i I feel like it makes me look younger um regular exercise i i don't like following a strict diet but i think more of a keto green really helps me and um staying away from alcohol as much as i can and when i do decide, because i am her old party girl that when i decide to have fun i make a decision i do it responsibly as i can i take charcoal milk thistle and hot <laughs> <drink> water <laughs> and just be prepared that I'm not going to feel so good for a couple of days but as a rule I don't drink like nightly I think that makes a huge difference yeah. I, yeah
0: I really like that I mean those are some practical things and I think they work for you I mean as an Australian I'd be going like what the hell would you want to put your face in cold water but I don't even yeah. get it right. <laughs> yeah I thought I got yeah. clothes to it I just I could go down to the beach by me. You know, it's cold yeah. here. It's always cold to me here. So I go in and I go, yeah,
1: you can do cold water <laughs> swimming and there's a bunch of women and they the me doing, uh, doing cold water swimming. It I think very important is for me, transformative was addressing whatever trauma, whatever relationship issues I was having, whatever pain I wasn't paying attention to. I've been doing that in the last couple of years. It, I feel has really, really set me free. And, I've done courses. I used was in therapy before, maybe six, seven years ago. I'm done with that. It helped me a little bit, but everything else, I had to do it on my own. And now I keep finding new things and breaking down old beliefs. And um, a woman who runs Menopause Goddess, Lynette Shepard. She lives in Hawaii. She's a, she's a retired nurse. She had a group. The Menopause Goddess is about sixteen women, and they all agreed that they wouldn't and their marriages until they were finished menopause and i think that's really good advice like i think you can start thinking i have friends who are thinking in this way like i don't know if this relationship is what i need this is part of it it's very scary i understand that but um maybe saying like maybe this is something that i will address but do i leave now is now the right time is it really that bad that's i think we have to look at all just look at everything
0: we do we have to look at all of it and look at our lives and be prepared to say can i embrace this change too
1: It's worth it though. I mean, I can literally feel myself. Yes, it's like lower down and then up and then lower down and then up. A number one thing is sort your gut out. I had a very big gut issue. I had SIBO and I I had that taken care of this year and it has made all the difference. And a lot of times gut issues can present as perimenopause symptoms. So always get checked out. That's what I think.
0: Yeah, I'm with you in the gut. The gut brain axis is the most powerful uh, piece of stuff going on inside ourselves You know, your serotonin and your half your dopamine is made on your gut. A lot of our mood issues may not be just due to adjacent progesterone. They're also due to your gut not functioning. And there'll probably be a lot more in this podcast about that. But you're right. There's some really great advice there. And Marie, I think this is a conversation that is endless, of course. <laughs> But I really appreciate you coming here and sharing some insights from a, a perspective that is outside of the medical world, yet incredibly involved. So how do people get hold of you? Learn okay. I am Hot Clash Inc. all across, Hot Clash Inc.
1: across social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Ann Marie McQueen on LinkedIn. And my website is hotflashinc. I have a podcast, Hot Flash Inc. Um, I'm going to have a brand new website coming in a couple of weeks, and I'm launching my uh, season on my podcast. So, yeah, Hot Flashing, just head over there, say hi. So I don't, so I don't. I'm going to be moving my newsletter to Substack as well. So, um, but it will be through my website. So,
0: that's beautiful. Yes, definitely a Hot Ink newsletter. I open it I every. Appreciate- week. So <laughs> that is so exciting. I do. I, do. I love hearing that. And I do it genuinely. Oh, and I wouldn't just say because you're here on the show. Yeah. I love it. I open it. I read it. I get so much from it. I learn so much. And I think I'm reasonably well informed, but I'm still always open to learning more. And that's mm. my go-to source.
1: Oh, you really made my day. Thank you, Clarissa. Thank
0: you.